Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Save. Located in Ridgeland and Florida, Mississippi, give us a call, 601-992-6000. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element well studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music welcome back there rhino howdy howdy big willies fill in for you aptly on friday and monday we appreciate that i trust you had a good lengthy weekend there Oh, yeah, that was uh, a much-needed staycation to unwind and unplug and decompress. I I muted all social medias for anything even (laughs) remotely political for the entirety of the four-day weekend I had, and it was glorious. Okay. Well, you know, Although I had to add some extra words that I hadn't accounted for, like (laughs) immolate. Well, about what? Immolate. (laughs) Immolate. Such as the... uh, the Air Force guy that set himself on fire. Oh, yeah. Oh, that. Oh, so you weren't mispronouncing emulate. You were pronouncing I-M-O-late. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, I saw that. What? Well, so what's up with that? Uh, it's a guy that was in the U.S. Air Force. He's now deceased that decided to go outside the Israeli embassy, pour gasoline on himself, and set himself on fire while screaming, free Palestine. I don't get it. I really don't. I mean, I don't understand what would motivate someone to do such. Really don't. But it's, is it any different than some of the climate change wackos that just think they get their point across by defacing uh, precious paintings and things like that, these artifacts? Well, the, the big difference is once they get arrested, if they get arrested, they get to go home. This guy is dead. Well, that's true. Uh, they, they survive it so they can go wield their their ridiculous nonsense elsewhere. Right. This person fell at his own hands, essentially. So, well, we uh we got lots of stuff going on. We got Christopher Green on at ten thirty five. He's a law professor, of course, at the Ole Miss Law School. The professor was just on talking about the uh, the Trump verdict uh, last week. You recall that one went down in the state of New York, requiring ordering the former president to shell out three hundred fifty million plus a hundred million of interest charges that continue to accrue, but today the professor will enlighten us on a couple of cases 
concerning the regulation of social media. Uh, these are in Texas and Florida, such regulations. And it's a question of whether or not the government can compel these social media platforms to allow all speech. So I look forward to that interview at 1035. And then at 1205, we got us a little education roundtable once again here in the Element Well studio. It's Rob Robertson, a member of the Mississippi House of Representatives. He will be accompanied by Kent McCarty, another member of that house. And we're going to talk about this uh, new education, public education funding uh, formula and some other bills they're working on with respect to education here in the state of Mississippi. So we've got um, a State of the Union address coming up from the president, Joe Biden. When is that scheduled to occur? Is that tonight? Did I see that right? State of the Union? Uh, That will be in front of a joint session of Congress, as it always is. Uh, Is it tonight? Did I get that right, Rhino? For some reason, I think it is. Lots of news about it, that's for sure. And there are many members that are calling for the president. Uh, It's next week. Pardon me. I'm a week off. I think I got it a week off. Is that right? Yeah, March 7th. Yeah, I got it a week off. Thank you. So I was putting in today's date and airtime, and I was like, I'm not seeing anything. (laughs) What is wrong? My fault. Uh, My fault. I was was a week off. Uh, But there's lots of news about it because there are members of the House, in particular Republican members, that are calling for the president to cancel it. Uh, And that will give him... I guess some more time to prepare, but they're they're calling for it to be canceled because they just feel like that they got to focus on funding the government and getting a deal done. I mean, that's kind of what I'm seeing here. Weak. I, I agree. Weak excuse. Yeah, I, I agree. So. Representative, we got to put off something from a different branch of the government because our branch can't can't take, can't take care of business. That is true. Representative Scott Perry, a notable member of the Freedom Caucus in the House, he's one of the members who's calling for a cancellation of the State of the Union, and he says that they need to use all their leverage to negotiate a budget deal. And, I mean, I don't really get the connection, honestly, Rhino. I don't get it. What's the – he said, yeah, this is what Perry said, Representative Perry said, Republicans need to use, quote, every single point of leverage, unquote, in their budget. Well, of course. Well, so will they. I mean, and once again, do we have to explain to both sides here? You really have somewhat limited leverage because you don't have control. That's how our government works. Thank God. So the Republicans are in charge of the House, he says. There's no reason that we need to invite him to get more propaganda and actually blame the American people. Well, that's true. It's what he does on a daily basis. But I don't know that that justifies saying, let's just cancel the thing, put it off. 
So just a reminder, the government runs out of money on a Friday. Here we are again. What are the odds we're going to get another kick-the-can-down-the-road continuing resolution? What do you think? Because I don't think they're back yet. I think they get back tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's either the 28th or the 29th when they reappear there in the Capitol. I know they're gone now. I happened to see Congressman Michael Guest last evening at an event. So, But what are the chances we're going to get these four spending bills which are needed to fund the portion of government that is without funding as of Friday between now and then? Slim to none. Here we go again. The old continuing resolution (laughs) merry-go-round. Unbelievable. Uh, You're right. It just seems like, I mean, you're right in that the fact that the, the House can't seem to get something done there is not a reason to cancel the President's State of the Union address. The, and, and the representative uh, is right as well, Scott Perry, in that, yeah, that's what you can expect from the President. That, is that not what all presidents do when they make a State of the Union address for the most part? That They're going to pretty much inundate you with their message and a message that, of course, supports everything they do, everything they want to do, and essentially offers an accountability that everything is just great coming up roses. I mean, that's pretty much whoever, right, is in the White House. And that is the privilege they get for being elected to that office. Now, would you like to see a more objective analysis and true, quote, State of the Union? That it's not so partisan? Well, sure. But I don't think we're going to see that. I don't know that we ever have. It's been a while. I mean, I would like for it to rain $100 bills whenever it thunders, but uh, you don't always get what you want. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm disturbed that it's another round of this continuing resolution stuff, and we were told that if we just elect a true conservative, Mike Johnson, this, this nonsense will end. We won't have that anymore. How are we doing on that? And no disrespect Almost to the speaker. Almost like that whole kerfuffle was just playing politics and trying to get attention in front of the camera. I think that is an accurate description of what we have witnessed. I mean, that's an accurate Sadly. description of pretty much the entirety of Matt Gates' time in Congress. I totally agree. And to some extent, Marjorie Taylor Greene as well. But he was the main one that led the effort. And again, what can I'm, I do or say to get in front of a camera? Pretty much. And and I'm not showering praise on on Kevin McCarthy. I'm simply making the point that we were told if we just make this change, bliss will break out. And that hasn't been the case. The main thing they were upset about was this continuing resolution approach and the lack of regular order in passing spending bills. We still hadn't done that. That's the point. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. The governor delivered a state of the state last night. We'll get to that for you. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
with you, everyone. It's middays. We're in the Element Well studio. So the governor delivered a state of the state address uh, last evening. Uh, that, I believe, in the House of Representatives uh, chamber there. And uh, the governor really focused, and I applaud him for this, he focused on economic development. Economic development. So that's what we've said here on the program. We've had two major economic development announcements early on in the session in as many weeks, historic announcements. And I totally believe that, and I've said this before, that the governor fully appreciates the value of economic expansion as the key just to improving the overall quality of life for Mississippians and to retain our best and brightest from our fantastic universities and creating more opportunity for Mississippians. And there is a bit of a snowball effect whenever you have these economic development announcements and significant business capital investment. It tends to attract more. They're sticky like that. Serve as a, a lure for a new uh, projects, and businesses start taking note. What are they doing there in Mississippi? Low taxes and regu- a regulatory environment that is favorable to business. Good workforce. Uh, just a great overall quality of life in our state. Those are key factors. Good infrastructure. Now, does that mean it's perfect and we got no work to do? Absolutely not. Every state does. But we're doing pretty good. And so he focused on that. $12.5 billion in business investments over two projects approved earlier this year. One in Marshall County, followed by the big AWS project coming to Madison County. Then yesterday, Rhino, groundbreaking on the Top Golf in Ridgeland, first in the state. You ever been to one of those? They're pretty cool. Can't say that I have. The, um, You know, I, I'm pleased that one is coming. I think that the population in the, in the metro area, I, I suspect, is a bit borderline to make such a project, such a business viable, just knowing like the kind size of size of the population. Yeah, just knowing their their model, for example. There you know, there's a lot of companies that have determined at least or as a as a matter of just business policy, they will only locate in certain MSAs just based on the population they feel they need to succeed. The cheesecake factory is one that comes to mind. Pretty much if you're not close to a million in the MSA they're not coming. They feel like that's necessary uh, for their business model to be viable. Top golf is, is well, similar. You've got to have a million people to make it worth your while to have a 40-page menu. That's very true. Is it the longest menu you've ever seen? Pretty much, right? Have you ever been in, into one? And I've been to, to several across the country. Uh, my wife and I, my kids, we like them. We like it because, because of the uh, what you just said. You can't find something on here that suits everybody. It, you don't eat, pretty much. But I, I've never been to one where I didn't have to wait, no matter what time of a day or night. I mean, I don't care if it's in Birmingham. There's, there's one in Birmingham. There, What's the summit, I think, the development's called? Really cool. 
I've been to them all over the place. But nonetheless, I'm digressing a bit. The Top Golf, I would think, I'm pleased as punch. I'm happy. I mean, I think it's great, and I and I I want it to, and I think it's will succeed. And I'm quite sure they've done all the market analysis and research. You know that. I mean, this is a sophisticated company. But I, I'm glad they saw fit to locate here in central Mississippi, in Ridgeland, not far from our location right here. Big ground-breaking ceremony yesterday. Going to be pretty cool. There's one in Denver that is uh, not far, like across the street virtually, from the Denver Broncos headquarters. And, you know, we had a location out there, big staff, and we had a corporate membership, which they make available. At least they did in that market. And we used it regularly for events because you could do events with your customers and then, you know, have a little top golf and and food and drink and and uh, socializing. We would do birthday parties for staff and stuff like that. Really cool. No doubt about it. So I look forward to that. But the governor, again, hyper-focused on economic development. One thing that he didn't talk about, which was a little surprising, was uh, this issue of expanding Medicaid in the state of Mississippi. Now, he has made some statements in social media where he has, I would say, say, voiced his opposition to the program. But uh, best I can tell from what I read, and I was unable to attend, but from what I read from the address and reports by third parties, avoided that topic. Didn't talk about it. I can't ex- explain. It wouldn't even hazard to speculate why at this point. But we did see, while we were on the air yesterday, uh, Rhino, the House, House, uh, the Speaker of the House, in fact, the author, filed a bill, the principal author, Speaker of the House Jason White, filed a Medicaid expansion bill. And you know this thing is inv- a bill you know, Rhino, you've looked at a bunch of bills doing this job. You know it's involved when you look at the title, and it's about 40 lines. You know what I mean? <laughs> that summary in all caps, uh, which is hard to read. The all caps kind of hard to read, isn't it? I don't, and I... Is that like a, a formatting standard for legislation, documenting legislation? Where did that come from, the all caps in the title? Because it's the title, I guess? Uh, that or if it's calling in code sections. or I mean, there's a couple different reasons, but, yeah, mainly the title. Okay. Well, it, it's one of those deals that's long, you know. So, but also... Yeah, when I... Get to about the hundredth bill I've read in a sitting. I, I start coming up with fun ways to make it more entertaining. Like I imagine there's a town crier reading the title of it. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye! <laughs> I like that. We should practice our town crier voice and come in and start reading bill titles. <laughs> I like that. That is cool. So we uh i I feel certain we'll be talking to some folks involved in this in the next day or so um perhaps that will be the speaker or representative missy McGee. I do know that the Medicaid committee over there in the house 
is scheduled to meet later on today. I'm going to try to attend that. I I got a bunch of questions. I know you're shocked by that, but after reading the legislation, and, um, you know, last week we had on my good friend, longtime corporate employment lawyer, Pepper Crutcher, who knows this this subject uh, better than most because, of course, benefits think about health care as a benefit if you will provided by employers since he does represent employers deals with this all the time constantly all kinds of stuff comes up that requires legal expertise from the likes of uh, mr crutcher he calls me about seven o'clock this morning and at that time honestly i'm laying in bed reading and i'm and i'm reading on my phone and he calls me, and I had already read the kind of the title and just perused the bill somewhat yesterday, had other events, didn't get to it. And he starts digging into all these weeds, and between him and me, it's like, what a crazy conversation this is for 30 minutes or so. And, it, and the more we read it, it, the more questions we had. So uh, one of the things that I should share with the audience is that this is being promoted and we got a break we'll get to it after we speak to the professor but just hold this thought this is being promoted as essentially coming at little to no cost to the state of mississippi from a taxpayer perspective now bear in mind the expansion coverage group that would be able-bodied adults that coverage group has been available in the medicaid program since the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, uh, it, it made it available. But in 2014, states could begin participating. Forty have signed up. Ten have not. Mississippi's one of them. That has not. By In accordance with the law, the ACA, the federal government, covers a 90% of the cost in the state, 10%. This is being promoted as the state's 10% is being covered through other means. We'll get to that later in the program. Professor Professor Christopher Green is next. Attention adoring fans! It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Consider like this groundbreaking video in its day. Remember that, Rhino? It, it was stop motion animation. Right. All the buzz, nothing today. You can do it on your phone, right? Or a simple personal computer. We welcome to the program again uh, law professor Christopher Green. He's a professor at the University of Mississippi Law School. Uh, professor, always good to see you, sir. Thanks for coming back on. Oh, thanks for having me again. So now we got, uh, so the last time you and I spoke, it was concerning this verdict uh, the state of New York handed down, uh, essentially ordering the former president, Donald Trump, to hand over $355 million plus interest. Today we got a different matter, and this concerns the state's, a state's ability, I guess, or a couple here as plaintiffs, 
to regulate social media platforms and the content that would be shared on these platforms. Is this overreach by a state government into a private industry? Or is this appropriate and the justices don't seem too kindly to this <laughs> this ruling there in these states, these laws? It's hard to tell. I So they, they, they addressed this issue about a year and a half ago uh, in the, the posture of deciding whether these, these laws. So we've got a Florida law and we've got a Texas law. Uh, the Florida law was upheld by the 11th Circuit, uh, uh, or was, was struck down by the 11th Circuit. The Texas law was upheld by the 5th Circuit. So a year and a half ago, uh, Texas, uh, or, or, or the, the, the challenges, so it's a group of, of kind of all the big tech people, so Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, everybody, uh, they come to the uh, Supreme Court, and this is while Justice Breyer is still on the court, and they say, hey, would you please put the Texas law on hold uh, during the pendency of the litigation. Now, the Supreme Court decides five to four uh, with Breyer in the majority uh, to put it on hold. So Breyer leaves the court and those these other eight. Uh, so the uh, very interesting split. So the, cons- the kind of more conservative six, they split three to three. And then the liberals, uh, including Justice Breyer, split uh split two to one. So of those eight, you've got uh, three conservatives. Uh, so these are uh, uh, Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito, who were in favor of allowing Texas to go go forward. And Justice Kagan, although Justice Kagan didn't explain herself as a, at, a, at as much length uh, a while back. And then the other side, you had uh, Barrett, uh, the Chief Justice, and Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Sotomayor saying, let's put it on hold. So those were the ones. So the interesting thing listening to the arguments of the four hours of argument yesterday was uh, trying to see if people were uh, possibly shifting and then seeing what Justice Jackson was going to do. Uh, she's very different from uh, uh, Justice Breyer in, in some respects. Um, one big thing that was going on was the facts. So like, just we don't know quite how Facebook does, you know, what their algorithm, yeah. algorithm is. Uh, Twitter, they're, you know, they're changing their algorithm. Uh, so they, well, you know, if you're on Twitter, you, you're like, oh my goodness, I've got, you know, all kinds of nonsense bots, <laughs> you know, today that they tweak and like, well, they're, they seem to be gone for, <laughs> for a few hours or something. Uh, so they're constantly tweaking the algorithms. We didn't have any discovery about like what these algorithms are, but, uh, at the, at the, at the end of the day, in terms of how I think of it, I want this to be a 14th Amendment case. Uh, and there was a little bit of interest among the justices for thinking this in terms of the 14th Amendment. Texas, I think, was more interested in making that kind of argument than Florida seemed to. Um, but the, uh, I, I think there's enough interest that it'll be, uh, as the justices work on their, their opinions, I think they're definitely going to be uh, thinking about, about those, uh, those old cases. There's a case from 1894. Uh, that Texas relied on, uh, saying that essentially Facebook uh, and YouTube they're like the Telegraph. So we actually had a case. Uh, hmm. If can you, uh, if you're a Telegraph company, can you, uh, you, you are you uh, viewed as just purely a private company uh, where you can make up your own mind about what messages to send? They said no. You're subject to the rules that apply to railroads. You're a common carrier. Hmm. Uh, so the argument about whether those old rules from 1894 <laughs> uh, are still good rules in light of applying the First Amendment against the states, that's one of the big questions uh, kind of lurking in the background. Um, 
I don't know, you know, so I don't know if you've got a majority for that. You probably, I think, can count to five in terms of having a majority saying we need to know more facts. Uh, uh, so they, I think they may tweak the uh, 11th Circuit, uh, say vacate it and, and send it back for development about whether there might be some things that, that Google uh, does that uh, are common carrier-like. So Justice Barrett at one point, she said, well, Gmail... Like, I'm just sending email back and forth. I don't want them to censor that based on my politics. That would be, you know, that would be really kind of outrageous. But uh, saying you can have, uh, you know, Google searches, uh, you know, not turn up pro-terrorist or pro-suicide messages, that that kind of thing, that might be different. So because of that, uh, so, you know, uh, Barrett mentioned, mentioned that very explicitly, hmm. but uh, Justice Jackson, I think, was a little more energetic, saying we just really don't know enough about this to to affirm the the Eleventh Circuit, and even Justice Sotomayor. So she voted to put the Fifth Circuit one on hold, but she was uh, expressing that kind of line of thought. Those views, plus the uh, 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 the conservatives who want to uphold the. Th- it seems like at least Alito and Thomas, maybe Gorsuch, want to uphold the thing in its entirety. Uh, it seems like you get you get to a majority uh, saying that you know that this kind of regulation can can live to fight another day. Yeah. So it's two separate cases, best I can tell, right? Florida and, and Texas they're not joined as as plaintiffs uh, in arguing one case here. It's two separate cases, but it's two no, no, this, 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 two similar, uh, I guess, premises in the case. Is that right? From both uh, Florida and uh, and. Texas, where they are, they arguing that, hey, these are common carriers, and therefore we as states can regulate them under the provisions that uh, uh, authorize us to do so. That's right. Florida statute is a little bit broader. It applied to certain websites uh, that the Texas didn't. Uh, Texas, they had some provisions about uh, regional discrimination. There was a lot of question about what that uh, what that exactly meant. Huh. Um, one big issue in the case uh, was the relationship of all this to Section 230. Right. So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So this is back. Um, it, it wasn't before the internet, but it was when the internet was just a little just a little infant. Uh, yeah. uh, we have this rule uh, about uh, basically making. Uh, the uh, platforms not liable for defamation, so they they say they're not regarded as the publisher. And they finally, the U.S. Supreme Court has finally had some cases interpreting that. So there's a lot of really kind of tricky questions about how you think about the state's ability to regulate, given that the federal government has given uh, these entities special privileges. Does the existence of special privileges under federal law? mean that you you get uh, more regulation under state law. Does the existence of pressure from the federal government? So we've got this other case coming up about, uh, uh, especially about COVID information, where the feds were right. going to Facebook saying, yeah, you know, you might not want to publish that. And they're like, well, you know, if we don't, are you going to, uh, uh, if we do, are you, are you, what's going to happen? Is, well, you know, it's always good to have a, you know, friendship with the president. Like <laughs> that kind of implicit stuff Um if that's happening at the federal level, then one argument that one law professor uh, uh, made, so if you've got that, one way to allow Facebook to insist on neutrality is to actually give them an obligation to be neutral under state law. Yeah. So um, a, lot of, a lot of interesting currents about the federalism implications. But uh, but I'm rooting for uh, going back and, and uh, getting it. Instead of having a, a rigid government versus private, uh, rule. The traditional way of thinking about this is actually tripartite. So you've got the government, 
uh, the use regium in, in uh, Chief Justice Hale, the way he put it. Uh, then you've got purely private people that have nothing to do with serving the public, the use private them. And then you've got this region in the middle, the uh, businesses affected with a public interest, the use publicum. So I okay. want to see, I mean, and, and just in the ni- late 19th century when we're doing the 14th Amendment, uh, that's a pretty commonplace way to think about things. So hmm. I want to see a reinvigoration of the businesses affected with a public interest, just like I did in the 303 creative case. Hmm. Uh, and I... I uh, some of the justices really don't like that view, um, uh, but the fact that it's getting getting some flack suggests that there may be at least some interest in in, in going there. Uh, this whole common carrier question, to the extent that they're going to dig into that, it might well cause some reinvigoration about well, what are the limits of government? Can they just you know take anybody and say, oh, you've got public duties? Um, if they say. Facebook has special duties because they have certain characteristics that might also help them say, and people who don't have those really should be free from regulation. We can let the market handle that stuff. Yeah, I I guess uh, as uh, the private sector side of me says, wow, that's awfully subjective, right? If you say that a, a, a private entity somehow has this obligation because it affects the public, and I would I would agree that social media is first thing come to mind that would fit into that category, but then you got other folks that are trying to decide, oh, no, you affect the government, therefore, or you affect the public, excuse me, uh, and you're in the public's interest somehow or another. It just seems like that could have broad application and be very, very subjective. we got a break, Professor. Oh, yeah. If you could stay yeah. with us, come back, and we'll continue that discussion. Professor, oh, sure. Yeah, Professor Christopher Green is our guest on Middays. We're coming right back. Hello, I'm... Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back. On Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with uh, Ole Miss Law Professor Christopher Green. So, Professor, i got to ask you again, please explain those three categories. They, uh, the, the hybrid one that you were talking about that I think applies here, I believe it's Latin terms you were using. you got the, what is it, privatum that refers to private property rights and, 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 and everything that entails. And then you got public, which I think in our context in this country would refer to government. And then you got the middle, which is kind of where these fall. What was the term for that, sir, that you use? Pro public? Yeah, so so yeah, the 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 use publicum. So the use law publicum. governing people with an obligation to the to the public. So the, okay. you know so the, the big treatise on this, the the seventeenth uh, uh, century one, uh would be like the owner of a bridge or the owner of a special wharf, the only the gates to the sea. Okay. The idea is the people who are at uh, a critical juncture in uh, the the, uh, avenues of commerce aren't allowed to be trolls and use that position to leverage, uh, uh, you know, their own politics would be one way, but just make more money. Somebody comes along like, oh, somebody with a whole bunch of money, uh, we're just going to charge them a whole bunch more. You can't have price discrimination. Uh, that allows uh, allows people with that that special bit of property just because they happen to own it 
to get this huge, huge windfall. Gotcha. So the argument is uh, that the, uh, so this is so in the late 19th century, early 20th century, this doctrine is actually used to limit the power of government because you have people saying unless you have some kind of special market power, unless there's some kind of reason of scarcity. Uh, you're not allowed to regulate people. Okay. So uh, one of my favorite cases that I'd love to see um, get treated more seriously, the Supreme Court's never overruled it, but uh, a case from 1923, the Charles Wolf Packing case. It's uh, So these are people who make bread and they sell it to the public, uh, but the state said, oh, because you sell products to the public, uh, we can come in and regulate all the wages of all your workers. <laughs> On the, on the guys that you are a business affected with a public interest. And what Chief Justice Taft said in, in Charles Wolf was, uh, that's not how it works. You're not affected with the public interest merely because you sell to the public. There has to be some kind of reason of scarcity. There has to be, uh, and he, he just looks at the history of, of bread production and says, look, bread is more, more plentiful now than it's ever been. Uh, there's no reason you have to go to one particular bakery, one particular manufacturer, uh, unless you've got some kind of lack of substitute goods. You're not allowed to come in and regulate. And this was this was the argument I was making in uh, the 303 Creative, where somebody has got this website uh, design company and uh, says, hey, I want to go into wedding websites. If you want a different kind of website, you can just you know click in a different thing. There's perfect uh, uh, availability of substitutes. Um, but the argument for Facebook is, um, well, you can't just go across the street and get, uh, you know, you don't like it. Uh, you can you can build your own uh, build your own Facebook. Um, to some extent, you know, people have been trying. You know, so uh, there have been four or five different attempts, I think, uh, maybe more, to to build a new Twitter. People upset at Elon Musk. They're like, "Oh, I, 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 I'm constantly getting uh, things, uh, yeah, uh, saying, oh, do you want to look at threads?' Yeah. Uh, so he give me these little teasers, uh, and and say, so, 'Oh, if you click on this, uh, you can see see some sort of Twitter competitor.' And I click on it, and this is, 'Oh, I've got to sign up and create a whole new account.' You know, to say, you know, so Justice Thomas, he he addressed this issue kind of uh, 2001. He has an uh, 2021 an opinion. Uh, where he says, you know, it's no answer to somebody who's trying to get across a bridge that, well, I could swim, okay, rather than <laughs> using the a river over the, the, the bridge over, over the river. No, the, the guy who owns the bridge, uh, if he's got uh, that kind of market power, can be subject to a duty to serve all me members of the public uh, uh, equally. So, so yeah, a lot of kind of the libertarian folks, the people who are like, oh, I don't like regulation, uh, they think, uh, some of them think the net choice case is a super easy case. Uh, Hmm. I, I think I don't think it's so easy. Uh, I think, and I, I'm kind of looking at it in terms of like reinvigorating these traditional doctrines uh, as being a good thing for getting government within its its uh, uh, proper bounds. Yeah. Uh, Justice Kagan was interesting. She had this dissent in the 303 Creative where she thought public accommodations laws are not subject to any requirement of scarcity. Uh, hmm. They can you just the government comes in and kind of just tell people not to discriminate. Hmm. And she actually said, well, you know, this whole idea that this is a public accommodation law uh, seems really interesting to me. Uh, so if you take that kind of interest and then tie it to uh, some of these traditional limits on uh, uh, duties to serve the public, uh, I think, it would, you know, I think it would really it would, it would bring this 14th Amendment law back to what it uh what it should be uh in terms of the co concepts that were uh, current during uh reconstruction what does it mean to be a citizen 
It means to be treated in a certain way by the government. And it also means that they're going to uh, require people who have a, an obligation to serve the public to serve all citizens. Makes equally. sense. Serve, yeah. serve citizens of all religious and political creeds uh, equally. So that idea, I think... Um, it's got it's got legs when you look at the history, and if the if the court wants to go that way, there's there's plenty of plenty of support for them. We always appreciate you coming on, Professor. I'll just make one final comment, and then we got to go. Is you know the the private capitalist in me says I will be able to make whatever I want, subject to reasonable regulations, and sell it to whoever I want at the price that we agree to without the government intervening. And so I, I'm worried about overreach here, but always appreciate your insight, sir. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Folks, we're stepping, a break, uh, stepping aside for a break. It's time for Fox News, Super Talk News, coming right back. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's hour two of middays. We are live in the Element Well studio. The Dow down 169 at present. The uh, NASDAQ is up 41 points. So we got a mixed market going on there. We got the personal consumption expenditures. That's uh, the Fed's favorite measure of inflation. That will be released this coming Thursday, the 29th. I don't really know what to expect there, honestly. And I don't know what the market's expecting because there doesn't appear to be any consensus on that, which which may explain the mixed market that we got going on today. By the way, this use publicum, uh, Rhino, I just want to point out, that's J-U-S, because it's Latin, right? And... Best I can tell, that word uh, essentially means law or a system of law. Is that what you see? That's what I'm seeing. I think I got that right. So the concept, use publican, publicum, a right of public ownership. The right of ownership, this is what... Miriam says, the right of ownership of real property that is held in trust by government for the public. So you can see how that would apply, according to some of those examples the professor uh, professor shared with us, like a war for a bridge, for example. Made sense to me. But it's still disturbing, is it not, when you start, when government starts encroaching on a private entity like this, and and I know folks feel like and there's a lot of evidence that these social media platforms censor content they don't like, doesn't fit in with their little political values. There's no doubt about that. But I, I get worried about government stepping in with uh, essentially the, the government control and power and metaphorically holding a gun to their head. Hey, you're going to publish this. 
I get worried about that. You know, it just when you, it's that old slippery slope situation again. What what's next? like he like the example the professor gave about uh, the bread maker that was perfect. That made total sense. And you know, it's not just social media. I've been watching this in my industry since I started in it forty something years ago. In the in the networking world, I think a lot of folks would be surprised to know that. What we're all accustomed to today as the architecture, the the transmission systems uh, that we use from a from a a uh, physical connectivity perspective is Ethernet. A series of tubes. Well, yeah, exactly. But we're uh, Ethernet, right? It's built in to all of our devices now, but be it wired or wireless, and. Gosh, I don't know that you can even buy. And I was in a business. I don't think you can even buy core infrastructure, transmission and routing infrastructure and software that's not Ethernet-based. Well, back in the old days, I remember selling Token Ring, ARPnet, OmniNet. These were all different architectures because we had network wars back in the late 80s, early 90s. Who's going to emerge here as the standard? IBM were the token ring guys. And uh, uh, most of our IBM customers that were used IBM mainframes, hospitals, banks, big entities, man, they were token ring. There was no Ethernet. And it was way more expensive, but it was IBM. And IBM was really pressured their big customers. You want IBM to service and support you, then you need to make sure your environment is 100% homogeneously IBM. So it was IBM PCs. This is no lie. We had customers that would buy IBM parallel printer cables for 50 bucks when the third party was 5 Because... You called IBM and said, hey, I'm having a problem printing. I, I know this sounds crazy, but you got to think 40 years ago, right? you got your, your dot matrix IBM Pro printer plugged into your IBM PC with an IBM cable. And they would they'd check it out. Hey, do you got an IBM cable on there? <laughs> well, no, it's a third party. Oh, plug in an IBM cable and call us back. Well, that ain't got nothing to do with it. It's not the cable. But you see where I'm going. Yeah. And so all, the only point I'm trying to make is this where we are today, like the professor described, which is we got this limited choice, honestly, of social media platforms relative to the critical mass that's been built. And there have been others. You remember not so long ago, there were, I can't even remember. They've kind of fallen off my my brain now, but hey, I'm going up. Remember all this? I'm leaving Facebook. I'm going over here. What was the name of that deal? Well, you've had Blue Sky Social. You've had Rumble. Uh, I guess Kick would still be considered one, even though it's more video based. But Kick has come about in response to, to Twitch and YouTube. Truth Social. There was something else, though. What was the other one that was making a real big splash when everybody got mad at Facebook? And they were they were, they were were posting on Facebook, by the way, I'm leaving. Check me out over here. And that thing fell apart. It didn't make it. I remember seeing the CEO getting interviewed, and I kept thinking, how are they going to make that business model work? <laughs> because 
as I recall, he said they were building their own data centers that um, and were powering the platform with their own IT infrastructure in their own data centers. Like, I know what that stuff costs. That ain't going to work. You're, there's just no way, unless you can sell a whole bunch of ads, which you're not, because nobody's on your platform. That's the fundamental problem and the reason you have this critical mass bill. But through the years, we saw the operating system wars, where IBM had their OS2, Microsoft had their their Windows. Who's going to win? And even before then, it was just it was just a Microsoft disk operating system, and IBM Good old DOS. Yeah, right. I mean, so who's going to win that war? And then you had Apple coming about with um, more more business oriented personal computers, and they had their interface and operating system. And got so, a couple people chiming in saying Parler. That's it. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it. That's right. So where's that today? Can anybody tell me? Does anybody remember that? I do vividly. All these people on Facebook. I'm leaving Facebook. I'm going to Parler. Here's my Parler address and all that. Where are they now? Is anybody on Parler? Is it still in, in existence? Probably not. And, and it's because it, it's the same thing with the operating system. It's the same thing with Ethernet. Well, how do we need Token Ring and OmniNet and ARPNet? And I can't even remember. There were a couple of other protocols as well, architectures. But, I mean, none of that survived. Because it, it doesn't make any sense to have multiple Let's see, I'm going to buy me a laptop, but I needed to have Token Ring built in instead of Ethernet. And the next thing you know, the manufacturer's got 14 different models of laptops that are the same exact processor and storage and and screen resolution and size and form factor, but just different network interface. Well, that's, that's not practical. Same deal's going on here. So on the one hand, I think it's in the public's best interest to have a limited number of platforms. But on the other hand, I don't want them to be ha- be, have so much power that they can do things like influence elections or attitudes or opinions based on what they allow and what they censor. That's a problem. But do I want government getting in the middle of that? That scares the heck out of me, too. Because who's going to be the arbiter of what's appropriate and what's not you can certainly come to some consensus to a a great extent on that but i mean right wrong pronouns considered inappropriate these days it's stuff like that that really uh, causes you to at least pause and hesitate and so we'll see what the supreme court does is but what florida and texas basically seek is look we want these things to be pure free speech platforms, and okay, I get it, and we have the right to compel you to do that because we're considering you, you heard the professor say it, a carrier. Well, the next thing you know, you're in the bread-making business, and they've decided you're a carrier. That's the problem that I have with this, because it's people that are drunk on power, honestly, and anything they could do to enhance their power over you they're all about it. And if it means they can dictate social media certain things, there's a lot of power in that. So it's, these are just very, very difficult, challenging issues that require some thought. We'll see what the Supreme Court does with this. We're going to break right now, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of the governor's State of the State address and also talk a little bit more about this uh, Medicaid expansion bill. 
filed in the House, and the lieutenant governor was on with Mr. Gallo this morning discussing that. And guess what else he talked about? Something we've been talking about a lot. Old purrs. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Gary Jolly. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. So uh, on the break there, one of the protocols I forgot about, uh, Rhino, that um, in, in networking, that is. <laughs> F-D-D-I. <laughs> I think, I know it's fiber distributed. It may be data interface. but F-D- That's it. Yeah, okay, so... We actually, my company, we installed the first, we called it essentially a campus area network for Baptist Hospital, downtown Jackson. Rhino, I think this was 95, 96. And it was with an FDDI backbone, which I want to say was 100 meg, 100 megabits. And it was fiber. That's thus the fiber, the FDDI. And so at the core, these FDDI or these switches or hubs that had FDDI interfaces w- would essentially connect out to the edge, what they call the, the um, distribution frame. I can't remember now the acronyms like intermediate distribution frame and main distribution frame. All the engineers of the company handled all that stuff. But nonetheless, it was fiber out to a switch or a hub that then had copper out to the devices. Was it called the concentrator? Yeah, you would have a fiber concentrator. Could have that. But uh, 3Com was the manufacturer. We represented them. This is for Cisco. I know this is crazy. Cisco wasn't even in the networking business yet. I mean, the Cisco router became somewhat popular in the mid-90s, and that was invented as software on a Sun computer at Stanford, as I recall, by a couple of computer scientists that that came up with the Internetworking Operating System, IOS. That essentially is the... um, that that's the gold to Cisco. That's what launched Cisco. Is the internetworking operating system. But before that, the uh, the uh, 3Com, which uh, made these these devices called Landplexes. I can still remember them, and they had an FDDI interface on them. And again, 
they would distribute out to that would be in the core and all the main servers would connect to them and then they would distribute out service switches hubs out on the what we call the edges on the floors um, and then they would have copper out to the nurses stations and the PCs all over the place. Of course, that's long before we had wireless networks and that kind of stuff. But just reminiscing a little bit about that, just thinking about all these protocols that have have given way. This was long before 100 meg Ethernet was invented. This was long before gigabit, which is the standard now. Now it's, what, 45 gigabit, I think, is the core um, protocol standard. Nonetheless... Trying to recall all that stuff. But the OFDDI, yeah, I'm looking at a little report here. These were popular back in the 1990s when Ethernet was still young. It could only offer 10 megabit per second. That's exactly it. Installed the same. Then we installed ATM technology in FDDI at University of Mississippi Medical Center. That was the first campus area network there. Uh, Again, uh, using 3Com gear. And 3Com just, they went away because they... They just refused to see where this internetworking world was going. That just means networking networks. That essentially is the public internet today. It's just a collection of private networks or public networks, but it's multiple networks. That is what the internet is. Think about interstates. Same deal. Roads that connect states together. And they they just they kind of missed that trend, and Cisco didn't. Cisco comes out with the the router necessary to connect networks to networks, just like you have at your house. You got a simple and inexpensive router at your house that services your network on one side and connects you to the outside world on the other, routes between it. Same deal. Uh, It's just fascinating. And all that, of course, developed in the United States by these technology innovators all in the Bay Area. That's where it all came from. I used to be on 3Com's dealer council, go out there and meet with them. Beautiful facility, beautiful campus out there. What did it stand for? Computers, Communications, and Compatibility, I believe, was 3Com. That's where it came from. CEO, a guy named Eric Benamou. I believe he was French, if I'm not mistaken. He was fascinating and brilliant. But, man, they missed the boat. They had it going. But they're the guys... By the way, that company was invented by Bob Metcalf. You know what he invented? Ethernet, while he was working for Xerox. <laughs> it's crazy. It is wild how so many technological advances came out of the people that made copiers, and they just didn't really know what to do with them. Xerox had what's called the Palo Alto Research Center. Xerox Park is what it was called, P-A-R-C. And they invented the Winchester disk drive. That was really the first small form factor um, hard disk for mass storage devices. We called it a full 10 meg. 10 meg. Hold on to your hat. Yeah, for a couple of grand Um, in a PC. They invented really what is now the modern personal computer. The concept came from there. The graphical user interface we're all accustomed to today. Ethernet. That's where it all Heck, came from. they even from. had a big hand in the development of the mouse. The mouse was actually developed by Xerox. At Xerox and, they, and you're right. they like, what do we do with all this? And they had all these brilliant How people. can we possibly use this thing that connects via a cable and allows you to <laughs> interface with the computer 
Except it's a copy machine. That's absolutely true. But it's Bob Metcalf that invented the Ethernet protocol, and that ultimately became 3Com. That's all they had was Ethernet. We used to sell $895 3Com Ethernet boards. What's embedded in your processor today was a $895 board you had to install in a full-size PC. Hey, look, 10-meg Ethernet. Unbelievable. You know, this is, is that not just this story, this history, a fantastic testament to the power of human innovation and how human innovation improves human life? And this country is the best place on the planet. To I think it could also be a bit of a warning, though, because the only generations that have a an actual understanding of computers are the ones that came up during the growth of the entire industry. Like, you look at the younger generations, you can hand them a tablet, and they can intuitively figure it out before they can even read sometimes. But the younger generations seem to have no basic understanding of file systems or operating systems or actual storage they just see the number and the little bar and the bar's full i gotta delete pictures so i can take more pictures like they it doesn't register that that is data taking up space you're absolutely right about that and they, they don't understand the underlying technology and architecture of that so the generations that came before the growth of the use of computers they had a a they were behind the eight ball because they didn't grow up with it. They were learning something new at a later point in life, which is statistically more difficult. So true. And then you have these golden generations that grew up with it, helped develop it, helped move it forward. And now that it's it's not set in stone, but a lot of the major advances have already happened, and now it's just efficiencies. So the younger generations are forgetting what we've learned. That's a good point. Uh, I, I guess you could point to AIs, maybe that sort of next renaissance in that, um, in the next frontier of a human innovation. But, man, I look back on that, and, and we really did think it was a new renaissance. In fact, we used to, we used to kind of promote that a little bit. What we, we, I mean, we were calling the PC a new renaissance, and it was relative to nothing, the what you had before. renaissance. Yes, no doubt about it. And it was... All these smart people. You know that it's widely believed that PostScript, which is was invented by the founder of Adobe, it's owned by Adobe, the software company. Most people know them for the PDF technology. But you know what allows you to look at your screen and see a graphical image of a document of content and hit the print button, and it comes out the way it looks on your screen. The what you see is what you get concept. WYSIWYG, we called it. That's because of the invention of PostScript. That's the way devices and printers talk so that they can reproduce a, a paper on paper what you're looking at on the screen. That was because of the invention of that software. It is widely believed to be arguably the most complex software ever developed in the history of man. Postscript. Incredible. And they believe they get a royalty. Coming right back. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
We are back in the Element Well studio. We are pleased that you join us today. So, I wanted to pass this on to you. This is from Microsoft. It, um, they say they're committed to the principle of pay equity. Pay equity accounts for factors that legitimately influence total pay, including things like job title, level, and tenure. Our pay equity analysis adjusts for these factors in support of our commitment to pay employees equitably for substantially similar work. But they've got this racial and ethnic component as well in their pay equity. So on the surface, what I just read there, I mean, you'd say, yeah, well, okay, that's that sounds reasonable. But when you dig into it, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And that sort of got my attention, that they're, they're essentially looking to make some pay adjustments through this pay equity concept. And what that... What they say there, let's see if I can find it for you, is racial and ethnic minority groups in the U.S., it's $1.007 for every dollar to those not in that group. It's this adjustment, essentially, they're making. And it says, specifically for those who are rewards-eligible, U.S. black and African-American employees earn 1.004. Hispanic and Latino employees earn 1.004. And Asian employees earn 1.012 for every 1,000 earned by U.S. rewards-eligible white employees with the same job title level and considering tenure. So why are they getting into all this stuff about what your physical attributes are in driving their their compensation policy because that's certainly what it looks like as of september 2023 outside the u.s women who are rewards eligible earn 1.003 total pay for every 1.000 earned by men who are rewards eligible so we're telling you we're going to pay the women more because they're women that's with the same title same job title and level and considering tenure in those combined geographies I mean, they're just, they're just telling you. I mean, it's, it's blatant here. Uh, we're going to pay the people in these marginalized groups more money. What am I missing here? I mean, is that that's what it sounds to me like it's saying. Otherwise, they wouldn't publish this. You know that. This pay equity stuff. Pay equity. So this is back to the concept of Equality versus equity, like equality of opportunity and equity of opportunity is what you see it referred to often, which is says, okay, everybody's got the same tools and resources, but if these people over here, if they don't get to the same level, we're going to give them more. That's what it says. It's like you're playing football. And this team here, they got to go 10 yards for a first down, but this one over here, only five. And I, their linebacker gets to wear brass knuckles. That's right. Your linebacker's got to wear boxing gloves. <laughs> that's a good one. I mean, but that's what it says. It's unbelievable. 
It's uh, just more evidence of the old march to mediocrity. All right, so the governor did not talk about Medicaid expansion last night. That is a hot topic circling around under the dome there. We do have a bill released yesterday by the Speaker of the House, and I believe that is going to be considered today by the Medicaid committee in the House. We have a placeholder bill in the Senate at this point. It doesn't appear that we have uh, all the details hammered out yet on what they're going to do over there in the Senate. But high level, it's uh, there's a work requirement. This is where all the focus is, and, and the legislature is, is pretty uh, fired up about this requirement being incorporated into expansion. you got to work at least 20 hours a week to be eligible. Of course, that is that would require a waiver from the federal government since it covers 90% of the cost. I still maintain that's unlikely to be approved by the Biden administration. Might it be approved by under a new administration if it happens to be Donald Trump? Maybe. <clears throat> but I think it's clear that Based on history, we're likely to see consumer groups once again invade the state of Mississippi with uh, numerous lawsuits. That's what happened in the other states. They got these waivers under the Trump administration to the point that the court said you can't do that, or they just dropped it altogether, the work requirement. Uh, So that's... That's an issue. And then if if they use... If if, uh, someone on, on Medicaid... Under expansion, if they use the emergency room and and there's not an emergency use of the emergency room, they would have to pay ten dollars. I'd have to think about whether or not that's truly a legitimate deterrent. And then who makes the call? You, oh, this really wasn't an emergent situation. I mean, I know that there's some standards there, but that could be a little subjective. And you could see how, I don't know, what are you going to do? The person says, well, I don't have $10. You can't take the treatment back at that point. That's part of the problem with health care, economics, if you think about it. You've already got what you want. I mean, there are some cases, I guess, in maybe some primary care practices or even specialists. You've got to pay in advance. Certainly you've got to have to have a way to pay. But if you're going to the ER in general, you're not paying in advance for that. Uh, yes and no. Okay. I've, I've seen some examples where if you go in, uh, say, for example, you've got something with your colon or your appendix or your stomach or something where they're going to have to go in and do emergency surgery. Yeah. Even if you've got insurance, sometimes the hospital will forces the wrong word but for the lack of a better word force you to prepay at least a portion yeah i mean i've had to do that when i've had surgery before but but it's not an emergency but that's situation. even in an emergency situation okay. like you, you went to the er because oh my stomach is really hurting i'm throwing up blood or something and then yeah. hey we got to get you in here and get an emergency surgery real quick it's something to do with how much time they expect you to spend at the hospital okay so if, if it's just going to be a, hey, you're here, you're experiencing stomach pains, the tests show you've got a ruptured appendix, we got to go in and take it out. But you'll be out of here in six hours. 
So because you're not staying at the hospital, it's not the same charge on the insurance, so they're going to pre-charge you anyways. Okay. But it, that, that all goes back to why is this all so confusing? Yeah, that seems a bit bizarre. And I, I just, you know they don't want to mess with all that stuff. At the end of the day, they don't want to mess with that stuff. That's just a fact. They don't want to mess with that stuff. Um, I'm not saying it, it couldn't be done, but it's just, it's it's questionable at best that you could truly implement just a, a, a solid, ironclad, fairly error-proof process for something like that. But nonetheless, there's a $10 copay. Now, I don't, I don't know, again, that that is going to be any kind of significant deterrent. Uh, and I, anyway, I was just getting into, okay, well, once you got the service, maybe they asked for that $10. Hey, you're here. We can treat you, but your situation's not an emergency. You owe 10 bucks. I mean, I guess that's possible. Whether or not that's an effective deterrent, don't know. But it, nonetheless, send the bill. That's the point. Um, and then the other, there's another caveat uh, that's designed to prevent people from exiting, dropping their employer-provided coverage, and shifting over to Medicaid if they're eligible from an income perspective. So you work for a company, they offer insurance, you're enrolled in the in the group plan offered by your employer, but your your income makes you eligible for Medicaid. You could technically drop your private coverage, go to Medicaid, and not have any premiums and have little to no copays and deductibles. Well, the bill would require you to sit out 12 months before you did that. That, too, by the way, would require a waiver from CMS, from the federal government. I don't see them approving that. There's another important aspect of this work requirement and just the waiver in general, the work requirement, the sit-out period that we'll talk about on the other side of the break with respect to, okay, well, what happens if CMS doesn't approve that? Coming right back in the Element Well studio. termite is a you know what that means middays with gerard gibbert we'll do it live on super talk mississippi some people call me the space cowboy yeah some call me the gangster of love So, back on this uh, this Medicaid expansion bill, which is uh, sweeping. I mean, this is a big deal. This would obligate the state uh, to some spending, depending on how you look at it now. But uh, And I'll get into that in a minute. But it uh, certainly would obligate the federal government to send more money Mississippi's way to cover the 
additional population that would be enrolled in the Medicaid program. Uh, So, best I can tell, with respect to the CMS approval of the waiver that the state would request, best I can tell, and and this is after talking to uh, an attorney who read the same bill I did, I just wanted to get their interpretation. Expansion would happen one one twenty five with no work requirement if the governor did not negotiate with CMS for the waiver or if CMS did not approve the waiver by September 30th of this year, 2024. Does that make sense? So the governor says, okay, I'm not going to request this waiver as indicated in the measure. And or the request is made and CMS says, sorry, Mississippi, we're not approving that by September 30th. Either way, best I can tell, the thing still goes into effect. Medicaid would have to implement it without the waiver. But I think there's like a four year sunset on the program, and the legislature would have to reapprove it. Uh, is, you're shaking your head. You, yeah. you, that's your understanding as well. Okay. Yeah, just want to make sure. Yep. Got, you got that in there, right? A repealer, automatic. So, which is common. But so you're talking about a situation, depending on whose, whose numbers you look at, where there's a billion and a half, roughly, coming from the federal government and 150 million, roughly coming from the state to fund it, uh, this this expansion. And again, that just totally depends on how many people sign up. Now, there are folks who are cautioning, and they have a, a legitimate reason to do so, that there may be more people signing up than you're estimating. And therefore, all, this, all these economic and financial models you've produced are flawed because they're not based on the actual number. Because it's all based on how many sign up. One of the concerns I wanted to point out because I think I may have misspoke yesterday inadvertently, uh, and somebody caught it afterwards and, and uh, let me know about it, and I appreciate that. But so in the, in the Affordable Care Act exchanges, those, that's, those private coverage sold in the healthcare.gov, they're called marketplaces. You, you can go to it right now, healthcare.gov, tell it, give it your address or your zip code, and start responding to, filling out some digital forms, how many need coverage, how much money do you make, et cetera, et cetera. And it says, okay, here's some options for you. And I think there are four carriers in the state of Mississippi that sell in the insurance carriers in the ACA exchanges. And that's where you get subsidies towards your premium. They call them premium tax credits. And it's based on your income. So the lower your income, the greater the subsidy And it's not a certain amount towards the premiums. Like, okay, if your income is this, we're going to give you X dollars towards your premiums. It's that your premiums are capped and calculated as a percentage of your household income. So if your income, since the American Rescue Plan was passed, where the subsidy structure was enhanced significantly, if your income is greater than 100% of the federal poverty level and less than 150, your premiums are 
of your household income. In other words, zero-cost premium, but you still have an out-of-pocket responsibility. And with what are called cost-sharing reductions, CSRs, it's essentially more government subsidies, that's limited to thirty-four fifty a month. Here's where I'm going. Latest data I have shows about one hundred eighty to 190,000 signed up in the exchanges that are enrolled in coverage, sold through the exchanges in the state of Mississippi. Roughly 128,000 or 24,000, I believe. Yeah, 124,000, but that's a minimal difference. Of those that have coverage from the exchanges, they they are in that income category of 100 to 150 percent of the federal poverty level. Thus, many of them would qualify for Medicaid should we expand it. In fact, that's the federal government's um, dictate an option. It's not even an option. It's it's really where they want those in that income level to get their coverage. They'd rather it be in Medicaid because it costs them less money, costs the federal government less money to pay your Medicaid premium than to subsidize your private coverage. Therefore, they're going to shift you, guide you, route you to Medicaid. So there's a concern that up to 124,000 may just leave the ACA and go to Medicaid. That may increase the number covered. We'll talk about that more later on in the program. Fox. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three, the afternoon portion of Middays. I got confused on what hour it was there for a second. We've had so much fun this morning. <laughs> we are back with you in the Element Well studio. We welcome uh, now to the program in the studio. It's Representative Rob Robertson and also Representative uh, Kent uh, McCarty. And so uh, welcome to the program, uh, gentlemen. Thanks for coming in on the Middays. So it uh, looks like we're addressing the uh, formula that is utilized to fund education in the state, public education, state of Mississippi, K-12 specifically. And uh, I guess I'll start out by just pointing out, uh, once again, for the benefit of the audience, that when you look at the general fund budget, the spending uh, by the state of Mississippi on a K through 12 education, it ranks as uh, the top object in terms of monies received from the general fund. Roughly one half of our budget, I think maybe just slightly north of one half of our budget. What 2.2, 2.3 billion? Right? You guys are shaking your hands ahead. So, all right. So, but the formula is. Um, it's a little Byzantine. <laughs> the current formula is one way to explain it, and it looks like you guys have got some legislation that would uh, possibly change that. So, Rob, what do you think? Thank you for having us here. We're, we're really excited about this. Um, the, the The bottom line is is that for thirty two years we've had a we've had a formula that, in my opinion, it, it has become 
a little top heavy and 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 I think we need to have some conversations about how to change it and I, we think this bill does that uh, we we have something called the inspire bill um, the the bottom line here is, is that we have a six thousand six hundred and fifty dollar uh, base that we've come up with and then there are weights added to that after uh, you start with that base and the the the, the weights are going to be set up for uh, English learners. Uh, if you're if you're a, a school district that's dealing with a lot of uh, first time English learners, you're going to get a, uh, a a weight added to that number. Um, we've got uh, set up to where if you have gifted children, you're going to have a weight added to that. Uh, if you've got a uh, a child that has some disabilities, uh, we've got it tiered one, two, and three. Um, those tiers are set up so that if you're dealing with a child with Let's just say they're minor problems. Uh, it's weighted at one level. At the top end, uh, it's 175% weight uh, at the, the, the highest end. And that weight is set up so that the school districts will be able to handle that child and whatever needs that they may have. Uh, we have a sparsity uh, element to this. If you have children that are living in uh, a district that have uh, a, a lot of space where you have to have buses with dealing with fuel, uh, dealing with uh, the, 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 the everything that comes along with having a, a vehicle that, that has to drive very far, that there is a uh, an element. One of the things that I think make this really good is that we're going to the actual number of, of kids that are enrolled in that school instead of this, this antiquated idea that if for uh, three or four days out of the, the year, uh, we're going to count these kids. Um, the, the school district still has to deal with those numbers uh, of children that are enrolled in that school. So we're going to an enrollment instead of, uh, of an antiquated system that basically says, hey, uh, we're not, we're not going to fund you unless they can all show up. And God help you if you have a, a flu epidemic that hits at that point. So the elements of what we're trying to do are to update where we are today, uh, there's a CTE uh, uh, part of this, and for for old folks like me, that's vocational. <laughs> um, so we're 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 going to weight these things, give the school districts the ability to go out here and and really have an opportunity to understand what the legislature expects out of them. You know, that's the way money should flow. We should we should we should be allocating money to a system that tells the school districts, hey, we're going to give you weights and money to go out here and achieve a goal and the accountability model should reflect that and we we really haven't been doing that in the past so this is somewhat different than the present uh, old uh, i say old it's actually present but it has been a, around a while the mississippi adequate education program maep also rob i i, I think you covered all the various uh, factors that receive additional weight but i think one of them is income, right? I think there's an there, income There's an income well. element. I'm sorry, I missed no, that. No one. problem. There, there no is problem. an income element. If you live in a district that's 35 percent low income, you're getting a weight for that. So one of the things that that Kent and I actually talked about when we we started looking at this, we want to make certain that the children in the poorest districts are getting adequate money for their education. If there's one thing that I can say that 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 is our top priority, it's it's twofold for me. One is going to be children that are poor. The other is going to be children with special needs. Okay. Those are my two primary factoring in of how we're going to approach this. The, the reality is that you have school districts that 
that haven't been incentivized to go out and make sure that that, that we we are making IEPs available for children with special needs. Okay. Uh, and and the poor children, you know, we have lobbyists that come to the the capital every day for for corporations and everything else. You know what kind of lobbyists we don't show up? Poor children. We don't have anybody coming in, and we are that. In my opinion, we're that guard dog. We're supposed to be out here working for those those kids. And if there's an underdog out there, I promise you, I'm going to show up for them. Okay. All right. So, um, Kent, tell us how this differs from MAEP. Uh, 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 Representative Robertson did a good job of outlining all these the various weights that are added on. First, the base uh, cost goes up fifty bucks. I think is that right? From sixty six hundred sixty six fifty. Yeah, so the base cost um, in this legislation is sixty six fifty. Uh, the base cost in in MAP the way it's calculated now um, is through a, a formula um, that okay. it, there's a, a lot of different things that go into that formula. But basically, the the front end of MAP spits out a number um, that would be your base student cost number, um, and then the legislature is always funded, um, and not always, but with the exception of two years, has funded the actual. Um, has actually funded education at a level below that number. Um, still, the number that we've been funding it at uh, is lower than the sixty-six fifty that's the base student cost in this legislation. So this would this would okay. represent a um, a substantial increase. I mean, I think you know I'm okay to say that a substantial increase in uh, what we're spending in education. Um, it's just what happens to it once it gets there is a little bit different, and that's the part that we like to focus on. Um, the part of it that is again, like Chairman mentioned, why we uh, have worked on this bill. Is to try to address some of those inequities on the allocation side of it. So, um, you know, that to me is the is the the feature of this bill. I guess that, that excites us most is that we've got an opportunity to invest in some districts um, that don't have a lot of property. They're not they're not property rich districts. They've got a lot of poverty in their district. Um, things like that, because obviously a, a key component to education funding in Mississippi is property taxes on the local side, um, and then you know obviously the state support as well. So that's. Um, Again, kind of the, the key differences, I think, are on – if you look at a graph of the way the MAP allocates money to districts, um, which districts benefit, if you look at a graph of the way this this plan does, um, they're very different. And I think if you look at the, the, the plot of what we're looking at as far as which districts see the most benefit, um, it's a direct correlation to those districts that are higher needs. So I think that's the part of it that we're – I guess the biggest difference um, that we're the most excited about kind of addressing. For the audience, ex- explain the the present formula uh, vis-a-vis the local responsibility, the 27%, the 28 mills. I think that a lot of people kind of they gloss over that aspect of it. Explain that for the folks. Yeah, and that's that's easily one of the most um, frustrating, I guess, parts of, of, of addressing things with MAP um, is that we do have what we call the 27% rule. So um, basically districts must – or not must, but may contribute up to 27% of their – Adequate, adequate. I'm sorry. Adequate education funding um, from their local money. So um, that number, just to be you know to be honest, was just kind of invented. I think back in the you know when MAP first was developed as like a political. What where can we set this number? And, our, and the speaker, you know, Speaker White has mentioned several times his desire to um, kind of attack that number and and addressing some of the inequity in our education funding. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we've kind of done that, the 27 percent rule is still. Um, a part of this bill, but it covers all of the the state, all of the um, adic- all, all of the education spending for that district. So, right now, there are things that are carved out of that number. Um, this covers all of the expenses that go into operating a district, um, which which again does a little bit to chip away at that inequity that is inherent in um, setting a cap at what districts can contribute and, and cannot contribute. Okay, so but it's twenty seven percent or twenty eight mills. 
Right. That's Expl- correct. Explain Which, that. Whichever is lower. So right. a district can tax at 28 mils, um, and that can be – I thought you were jumping That's just an ad valorem formula, the, That's the millage. Yeah. Right. Or or the 27% of right. the funding, whichever is less, and the district gets to you know go with whichever. And the part that people don't really understand sometimes is a meal in Leland, Mississippi, is right. not the same as a meal in, in – Starville, I'll yeah. use my, my area yeah. for that example. And people have got to understand that what we're attempting to do is kind of bring this into some fairness and, and give those poor districts that opportunity. If it were up to me, we would we would be looking at raising that, that, that millage up uh, to a different level if it were left up to Rob. Hmm. But the bottom line here is is that we're, we're kind of stuck with what we've got, and we're doing everything in our power to make certain that those, those lower districts or the districts that don't have a high income, we're able to get that in that money to them and the districts also they have the discretion of contributing more it's just the minimum but they can actually add so the more fluid districts typically do that's that's exactly right all right we're coming right you guys can hang around there's more to talk about here we got rob robertson and kent mccarty members of the mississippi house of representatives we're talking about the new education funding formula they're working on stay with us Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Hey, you get closer. The lights are going dim. The sound of your breathing has made the mood I'm in. Back in the Element Well studio, we've got uh, representatives Rob Robertson and uh, Kent McCarty. So we're talking about the the uh, funding formula. It's crazy we even have a formula if you think about it. But it's necessary because uh, talking about education. Now, just let me clarify: K through twelve education for those that weren't uh, listening or tuned into the last segment. But our state, Rob, is unique. Um, I think maybe more than any other state, which is why anytime you look at these policies that are that are um, affect so many, so sweeping, so impactful. Healthcare is one, education is one. Everybody is impacted by that. Every community, every every county is impacted by it. But we have a significant disparity of affluence of, uh, uh, like you said, of property values, which on all states, honestly, are the primary source of revenue for public education. And so what we end up with is really high-quality schools, sometimes adjacent, district-wise. I mean, just a border, right? An A and an F. Side by side. Does that not exist in the state of Mississippi? And a thousand percent exists. The, the crazy part to me is we're one of the few states in the nation that that, that – 
put 75% of the school budget, supposedly, into education. Most of the other states use their, their, their uh, property tax. And if you're a wealthy state and a wealthy community that can do that, God bless you. What, what we have is a situation where the, the state has to put in 75% of that budget. Now, there's a reason for that. We're, we're 3 million people approximately, and we have a very poor state. Uh, I, I love it when people try to, uh, to equate us to Alabama or an, another state with larger populations. Alabama has twice the population. Not it's not the same. And whenever we get and start digging into this, we have to understand that we're, we're providing the very – when we talk about a minimum – impact on education that's what we're doing the the school districts that do have plenty of money they're able to support that system far better but we have got to do a better job of allocating that money for these poor districts make sure that certain that that smart kid in in uh leland mississippi is able to to get a good education and and be able to take care of his family you know here's the funny part to me and we all talk about brain drain in this state we talk about it all the time I can guarantee you one thing. The smart kids that end up going to, to, to college, we're not guaranteed to keep those kids. But you want me to tell you who we are keeping? All of the children that don't get a good education. They're staying right here no in our state. About it. We have got to fight to keep those kids as educated as we can and give them something to do. Give them a purpose. You know, I, my, my mom and dad used to tell me, He said they, they would say, Rob, I don't care what you do. As long as you go out here and, and God has a purpose for you. These kids deserve a purpose, too. And, and, and if it's left up to, to the legislature and, and the Ed Committee that we I currently have, I think that's what we're trying to do. Kent, the vast majority of our workforce doesn't come from our colleges and universities. The other states are benefiting from them. We're subsidizing the other states. Now, I, I agree <clears throat> with the governor, and I think you guys would agree with me as well. The, the solution to that is to bring more capital investment and business into the state, which we're, I think we're making much progress there. So there is a place for them to work. They don't leave necessarily because they want to get out of Mississippi. It's like, well, you know what I just got educated for? There are no jobs for in the state. Well, that's got to come from the job providers, the job creators. So I think we're making a lot of progress towards that. But to your point, most of our workforce – comes from the folks that get educated in our K through twelve public schools. Hundred percent. The the one of the things that we were I heard this morning and actually I do this already, but I, somebody was talking that we have about what was it eighty or ninety percent of our kids actually start college and then in five years only ten or twenty percent right. end up graduating. Yeah. We're doing a great Huge job. Drop out. We, we end up we end up setting these kids up for failure, and some of these kids are they're not meant to go to college. There's nothing wrong sure. with that. Right. There's nothing at all wrong with that. We should be setting these kids up to go. Uh, if if they want to do air conditioning work or if sure. they want to work on cars, you know what? That's a wonderful purpose, and that's a and that's a great way to make a living. Agreed. And we should be and we should be touting that and making certain that that our school districts are helping these kids understand that. Now, I'll tell you something that just absolutely drives me crazy is whenever I go and and I give cash and then the the poor the kid ends up having to put it in the calculator to figure out how to give me my change back. There's little things like that that we could be doing that are just so important, to, first of all, for their self-esteem, but secondly, giving them an opportunity. When they finish uh, uh, high school here in the state of Mississippi, there is no reason that we shouldn't have some minimal idea of what financial how to how to make sure they're balancing their checkbook these are things that are to me are low-hanging fruit that we should be absolutely doing so 
what about you guys driving some legislation that would require that well, in school? Hang on. We're, okay. We're, we're, we're getting there. So, so, Kent, you know, something I've observed, and this, this isn't across the board in our state, but in, in many of the communities where we have high-performing public schools, we also have an abundance of private schools. Think about that. And, and it's, it's, I think, because of affluence to a great extent. These are families that have just chosen. They want to go to private schools. And to some extent, they're also the ones that are paying, shouldering the majority of the local taxes that are funding the public schools, though their kids are going to private schools. You could argue they're subsidizing the public schools because they're not, they're not really um, consuming services from the public schools. Their kids are going to private schools. Where I live here in Madison, I think you could pretty much look at that. There, there are a number of in the area high-quality private schools, very high-quality public schools in my county of Madison. But, gosh, right next door to the south is Jackson, where it's a dismal failure, and it's sad. It's sad. Um, and it's because if you look at the accessible property in the state of, in the city of Jackson, pardon me, you can't get enough money to even have proper buildings, appropriate buildings. I, I traveled through Jefferson Davis County last year. I think it was Jefferson Davis County. I spoke at, a, at an event in Natchez. I think I traveled through Jefferson Davis County. I got to tell you guys, I was appalled what those buildings look like, <clears throat> those public schools. And, that, and that's one of our poorest counties, I believe. Mm-hmm. I, that's just, and I think about, wow, the schools I have in my county as a result. And they're essentially, to a great extent, be, just because of the affluence. This formula tends to normalize that more than the existing formula. Is that a fair thing to say, Kent? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this this formula, in my opinion, you know, seeks to address those those issues entirely that you just mentioned. Those districts that, you know, are more property rich, that do have more local resources, um, where they're able to you know build and maintain. They've they've got not only that, but they've got. Um, you know the ability when they do you know bond issues they've got the ability to access a lot more right. you know, a lot more capital for buildings and things like that. Good point. A lot of communities you know we've seen recently that have tried to do um, these bond issues or um, any kind of you know local raising of funds and they're unable to, to get them to pass. So can't get bonded. Um, you know we're working on that right now in Lamar County. You know, there's a there's I think going to be some talk about doing that to build some more facilities because we're just growing so fast. But um, you know some of these other counties that aren't growing they just have old buildings, they've got no real way to, to do that, um, to get that money, you know, in order to build new facilities. So one of the things that we wanted to address with this is is making sure that the new money we put into education, so anything, all the, the, the money that went over and above what we funded them out in the past was as best as we could without, you know, just picking arbitrary numbers, made as most sense as we could make with it, but also went to the schools that needed it the most. So those schools that don't have a big property base, um, you know, where raising a mill might not be worth anything to them. Um, You know, they might not have any other access to money. This formula would address that in ways that MAP, I don't think, it really seeks to do that. To those um, who say, well, we have too many school districts. We need need to think about consolidation in some places. We have too much money not getting its way into the classroom, but rather going to back office admin. 
What do you say to that, Ross? We we have a portion of this bill that basically says we're putting a committee together uh, to allow us to go look at those things, go find out what school okay. districts don't have enough population to 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 support a school system, uh, what school districts are in the D and the F uh, areas that we could could look at and do some things. I think we're going to have to have uh, our our community colleges and our colleges get involved in this issue. You know, we, we could go to the Delta, and, and, and I've got a bill right now that I'm trying to get Delta State interested in trying to, to put a school district out there on that, that uh, That'd be good. policy. Okay. Well, I'm, I'll make one final comment on that. I just wonder if we shouldn't take the A districts and set them side by side uh, with the low-performing districts and go through all the various characteristics and attributes and see, well, why aren't you doing it like this, like admin cost and number of this, that, and the other. You know what I'm saying, all the various operational aspects. Right. Appreciate you guys coming in. Thank you. Good Thank work. You so Thank much. you. It's always a pleasure to be here. Appreciate <laughs> it. Coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, 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 huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, that was a good discussion with representatives Rob Robertson and Kent McCarty about this proposal to change the formula that uh, funds education in the state of Mississippi. It, it, it is a complex, difficult problem. We got a lot of them we're working on this year, don't we, Rhino? We got this, we got PERS, we got health care slash Medicaid expansion. We got the ballot initiative. You know, we got a House and a Senate bill. And um, the difference there is the House would require 160. If, if, if the folks aren't up to date on where that stands, the House's bill would require roughly 160,000 signatures. And um, the Senate's would require 200,000. I believe it's 8% of the electors, the voters in the House, 10% of the electors, the voters registered voters in the state, in the Senate. The old process was 12% of those who cast ballots in the most recent gubernatorial election. And that amounted to about 105 or 108,000 or so. So now, present formula would require 105 to 108,000 signatures harvested to get a measure approved for the ballot for the folks to vote on. House bill, roughly 160,000. Senate bill, roughly 200,000. It's the way it stands. Because there's roughly two, somewhere thereabouts, two million registered uh, in the state. So, man, uh, so we got that going on. We got this uh, education formula. And I applaud um, 
the folks, uh, Rob Robertson and Kent McCarty, representatives, for working on that. The Senate has their own idea. Senator Dennis DeBar chairs education over there. They've got their own idea about maybe how to tweak the existing MAEP formula, which, uh, again, is a little involved, to say the least. Um, and then we've got uh, this Medicaid expansion. So we were talking about that earlier. And uh, uh, Thomas, who I don't think ever said anything positive in my three years of doing this on this program, there's the permanently aggrieved class, uh, says when Medicaid is expanded and the numbers are wrong and the state is forced to tax producers to care for the dregs of society, resulting in producers leaving. Well, those who advocated for it and refused to decry it admit fault. So, Thomas, are blind people dregs of society, disabled, the elderly, who are uh, past their work and have worked all their lives, for example, are those the dregs of society? You're going to be one one day, likely. We all are. That's just God's plan. But... I don't think that's the appropriate way to um, address it. So do, do you do, do people believe that everybody who can work can afford insurance? If you do, you need to check with your employer. If you're working for somebody right now, I think you would be enlightened to find that there are a lot of people that work at your company Depending on, the, depending on the type of organization you work for. If it's a professional services organization, let's say a law firm, CPA firm, perhaps, engineering firm, etc. And there are others. Folks there probably earn enough income. I would say this, earn more than 138% of the federal poverty level. And they likely can afford insurance by the time their employer picks up some of it, and they then have to cover the rest of it. But there are a lot, I think you'll find, that don't enroll because they just simply can't afford it, even their portion. Employer covers a portion of it, and uh, the employees responsible for the rest just can't afford it. But they still get sick, and they end up in the ER, generally speaking, for medical treatment, and they don't have any money to pay for it. They don't have any insurance to cover it for them. So what do they do? So all I've heard so far is no, 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 no. Okay, fine. Then what? Then what? Because to, to suggest that that's just not a problem, well, then you might as well say, well, we don't need doctors and nurses and hospitals and clinics because they don't provide any value. That's the same thing. That, yeah, you can... You can Avoid disease and human suffering and even death. Um, you have some power to do that, and thus you don't need, you'll never need medical services or treatment. Well, that's not true either. Somewhere in between, I think, is the fact, is the truth. And I, you know, there are multiple approaches to this, but they, Cost money. And I, I've said before, the fundamental challenge with health care, not just in this country or this state, but in the world, is we keep inventing more care, and it costs money. 
And folks want to receive it. Of course they do. They want to consume it. Sure they do. If it would alleviate disease and suffering and prevent death, of course. I mean, I'm an example of that. I think I've shared this before. I did last week when I was testifying, 2006, routine physical, which I can avail myself to because I have insurance, and it and it um, it covers such. Actually, Rhino, you know what? That was before the ACA, and you didn't get free wellness care. You had to pay for that. Your insurance covered a little bit of it, but that was a that was a provision of Obamacare. Now. Let's be honest. You're paying for it in your premiums. Free wellness care. Wink, wink. Oh, sure. Another 200 bucks for your premium. You get free wellness care. Isn't that how it always works, though? So, and I wrote about this in 2009. Oh, it all sounds great till you get the bill. And now look where they are. Premiums, 24 grand. But free wellness care. So, uh, you know, routine exam. And uh, as part of a routine exam for a male, you're going to get your prostate examined, what they call the, what they call it, right, or the digital rectal exam or something like that. The gentlemen out there in the audience know what I'm referring to is when the physician who dons a latex glove <laughs> asks you to bend over a little bit and perform such an examination. As part of that, they're going to uh, to pull out a little bit of that stuff that comes out of your rear end and put it on a card. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They drop a little solution on it, and if it shows up blue, that means there's blood in there. You can't see. Occult blood still test, I think is what it's called. I had that in 2006. My doctor says, oh, this is probably nothing. But you know what? You're a couple of years away from 50, you should, you should go ahead and have a colonoscopy just to make sure. Well, back then, unless you were symptomatic, um, insurance didn't pay for colonoscopies. If you just wanted to get a colonoscopy routine screening, insurance wouldn't pay for it. You had to pay for it. it back then, it was 1200 bucks. Now, I was symptomatic, so insurance paid for it. Of course, I had a deductible. But I go through a colonoscopy and... I, of course, remembered as long as I live when the physician comes out, the GI, and says, well, I got, and he had a concerned look on his face. You could tell. And I'm groggy, you know, coming to, and got two polyps, and I'm thinking you may have to have surgery. And, and I did. I had two polyps. The next day I said, well, the one I was worried about, good news is benign. The other one, it's cancers. But it looks like you've got good margins. I think you're done. Don't do anything. Next day he called me and said, well, I conferred with my 20 colleagues in the clinic here, half said have surgery, half said don't. And I elected to have it. I was in the hospital six days. Colon resect surgery. Here's the good news. Nothing, no further treatment needed. But you don't know till you literally go inside the body. You can't test the lymph nodes connected to the colon. I know this is getting deep. The only point here is that no pun intended, by the way. The point is, it's that routine wellness exam, that screening, saved my life. Because what they told me was, nine or ten months later, probably different outcome. Simple wellness exam. And guess what happens when that's a different outcome? That costs a fortune to deal with. A fortune. When you're dealing with metastatic colon cancer. And the reality is, in this country, in this day and age... 
No one should ever die of colon cancer. It's preventable. It's preventable in that they start as polyps, and polyps can be removed. And it takes them a long time, but you don't know until you go get these screenings. That's an issue we should address. We're coming right back with a final segment on Midday. Stay with us. If you've grown up... Gerard Gibbert. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, I'm going to say again what I said yesterday, Rhino. I know you were off. Will was in with. But given the PERS situation and the fact that it's just this big black hole that we don't know, honestly, how we're going to stabilize the fund, yet we certainly have an obligation. The lieutenant governor said that as much this morning. We, we're obligated to, to uh, fulfill these uh, this benefit the benefits we have uh, committed to. And I totally agree. I'd like to see the governor call a special session just to focus on purse and devise a plan that uh, he would agree to and sign off on, of course, that would give us some path forward to stabilize it. My concern is that we start talking about revising the education formula which is likely to involve more funding going to education. We are talking about Medicaid expansion. There's still some question as to what the state's cost would be, if any, on that. And there are, you know this, a number of other issues that will be debated and considered that will consume general fund expenditures. Oh, we got the Department of Transportation that's looking for some diversion from general fund revenues, I think use tax specifically. And again, I'm not I'm not being critical of any of those requests and any of those efforts. I'm simply saying that we have this legacy existing obligation to PERS that I feel like needs to be addressed and needs to be put to bed one way or another so that we know then, all right, well, how much money do we have? going forward to fund these other issues, these other measures and programs, be it transportation, education, Medicaid, corrections, all the above. Because that, again, as I said in the article, is the elephant in the room. And I feel like the legislature, it, it works so well. I was so proud of the governor when he called these special sessions to approve the incentive packages with the two big economic development projects 
that were consummated early uh, earlier this year. I thought that was a great idea, and they totally focused on it for two or three days there. Did nothing but that. Fantastic. Come out. Okay. Approved. Let's go. Signed, sealed, delivered. I just feel like the same thing needs to happen with respect to purse. Because I'm afraid what we're going to get are a lot of bills that kind of trim around the edges a little bit, but really don't take the necessary action to stabilize the fund on a long-term basis. And so it would be prudent to do that and responsible, in my view, before we take on any new obligations, such as Medicaid expansion. By the way, yesterday, um, inadvertently, the mistake I made was saying that in the ACA exchanges, I forgot to come back to this, that, that the potential risk was up to 28,000. That's in not 124,000, 28 versus 124. It's because of 28, we're in the next income group. And I just, I had that number in my head and I, I misspoke. And I apologize for that and correcting that. But nonetheless, we don't know how many of those people might jump off the ACA exchanges and move over to uh, Medicaid. I do know this, that there still are uh, lots of people. There's some 20 million, I think, this year. The the um, enrollment is uh, going quite well from the standpoint of a the largest in the history of the ACA or signing up for coverage in the ACA exchanges, about 20 million nationwide. And, and there are a large number of those that are in that eligibility income group that would make them eligible for Medicaid expansion, even in the states which have already expanded. So there's some confusion as to, well, why aren't they – moving over into Medicaid. And maybe that's because they're in there for one year, and when they go back and and um, go through re-enrollment, that the system routes them over to Medicaid. Not sure. These are the kinds of questions I feel like we need to get answered. There's something else that is contemplated, folks, in the Medicaid expansion bill in the House, and that is, Rhino, an additional 4% premium tax that would be levied on the managed care operators organizations should say that uh, run that part of medicaid for the state their insurance companies the state pays them essentially premiums they pay back to the state a premium tax the plan would add four percent to both traditional medicaid premiums and expansion premiums that would generate 140 million dollars a year that almost totally covers the state's $150 million estimated share of Medicaid expansion. But it's not clear to me that the MCOs have agreed to that and that they could just modify their existing contracts to add to it unless there's some language that says, hey, whatever the taxes are, you got to pay. But they may not sign up for the next cycle. We're out of here today, back tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.